Good morning from a not-so-sunny Edinburgh. Um, my name's Dr Rachel Sutherland. I'm here on behalf of the Royal College of Physicians, Trainees and Members Committee. And with me, I've got Professor Mark Strachan, who is a consultant diabetologist and endocrinologist here at the Western General. Good morning. Hello, Rachel. Morning. Morning, everybody. As you may remember... Prof Strachan was the first in our illustrious um, Hall of Fame of recording podcasts at the RCPE. And um, we talked initially about COVID and the impact of diabetes or diabetic patients in the COVID context. And we've had a few requests for a follow-up podcast uh, from Prof, um, which he has very kindly agreed to. And we thought that the most appropriate thing to talk about today would be about how to manage um, the hyperglycemic patients within the acute care setting and so I'm just grateful for Prof um, to outline a little bit we'll start by just talking a bit about the patient set um, who come in hyperglycemic to the acute medical receiving unit Um, so Prof um, with that preamble in mind I just want you to talk through how how you would approach and think about people who are hyperglycemic who walk through the door of our medical admissions yeah well as as you know, Rachel, I suppose a high blood sugar level is one of the commonest blood test abnormalities that we see in, in people coming in uh, through the front door of our hospitals who are acutely unwell. And you can divide the causes of that high blood sugar into four different categories. So most commonly, these will be people who have a known diagnosis of diabetes and as a consequence of their acute illness their sugar levels are running perhaps higher uh, than than normal the second category would be people who have pre-existing diabetes but it's just not been diagnosed and those individuals of course can be identified if a haemoglobin A1c is checked at the at the front door because it will by definition be uh, elevated. So you've got essentially two categories of people with diabetes, those where it's known and those where it's not known. The other two categories are occur in people who are uh, who do not have a prior diagnosis of diabetes or who don't have pre-existing diabetes. And the first of those is what we call stress hyperglycemia. So in essence, the severity of the acute illness causes a huge outpouring of hormones like adrenaline, cortisol, that antagonize the action of insulin, make us more insulin resistant, and as a consequence, blood sugar levels rise. But once you're over the acute illness, once that hormonal outpouring, once the inflammatory mediators have all settled, then the sugar levels go back to normal. And that is true stress hyperglycemia. The fourth category would be where there has been an acute precipitant of the diabetes. Now, if I had been giving this talk 18 months ago, I'd have said, well, really, the only important cause of that would be uh, steroid therapy. So people who have been given high doses of glucocorticoids for whatever reason, and in susceptible individuals, so usually older people and people who are overweight, somebody who might you might think might in the future get type 2 diabetes, that steroid therapy is enough to tip you over the edge into the diabetic range. But of course, in this COVID area, one of the things that 
there is there is a suggestion around is that as well as causing stress hyperglycemia by by means of the the severity of the of the acute illness covid might actually induce diabetes so there's evidence that the covid infection can directly affect the beta cells in the pancreas and impair insulin secretion and actually precipitate diabetes so as i say there are there are four reasons why somebody may have high sugar levels coming into hospital they've either got diabetes and we know it they've got diabetes and we don't know it stress hyperglycemia and um, an acute precipitant of of diabetes i think that's a really helpful way to sort of compartmentalize how you approach it because understanding how you can categorize people can perhaps target your um the way that you would investigate things i've just got one question about the third category you talked about the stress hyperglycemia you know does it mean that you need to follow these people up further down the line once they recover from you know their uti or you know i'm thinking about a lot of the people I see have quite a severe pyelonephritis and yeah, they'll have yeah. an initial sugar that's a bit raised yeah, and then yeah. it also seems to melt away. Yeah. Does it predict, you know, in the future that they, they might be more likely to develop a formal diagnosis of diabetes? Yes, you're absolutely spot on. So stress hyperglycemia is a bit like steroid-induced diabetes in that it tends to occur um, most commonly in people who are susceptible to get type 2 diabetes in later life, older people, more overweight people. That's not an absolute, but broadly speaking. So just as a rough example, if you ha- come into hospital with a blood sugar of over 15, yeah. and it is true stress hyperglycemia, so it all goes away after you're, after you're well, over the next five years, you are 15 times more likely to get type 2 diabetes, to develop type 2 diabetes. So yes, stress hyperglycemia is a harbinger of your enhanced susceptibility to type 2 diabetes in the future. It is also associated with, if you come in again with a sugar level over 15 to hospital, you are two and a half times more likely to die over the next five years. This is separate from the the severity of the of the of the acute illness. Uh, you are you have a higher mortality in the, in the following years. So yes, people who have true stress hyperglycemia should be followed up uh, in usually in primary care with an annual uh, check of either fasting glucose or an HbA1c because they are at increased risk. I think that's a really um, important point for me because it's something I don't necessarily make sure are in my immediate discharge letters to the primary care teams. So I think that's an important thing that will actually change my practice going forward from here because as the patient gets better, their hyperglycemia tends to resolve and then it's resolved by the time you're you're discharging the patient. But so to to comment and make sure that the primary care physicians are aware of that initial episode so they can do this follow-up is probably incredibly important yeah so. and i the, the other thing i would I, I would agree completely with that and you're not alone in that because of course the thing as well is you know we're handing on patients the 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 organizational memory of that sugar of 15 when they first came in is is not high if you've been in hospital for two or three weeks uh, people do do forget about that but the other thing i would just emphasize is that if somebody does come in with a very high sugar 
and they're not known to have a diagnosis of diabetes, do just do a, a hemoglobin A1c add-on to just resolve the question of, is this pre-existing diabetes that's undiagnosed or is it going to be a stress hyperglycemia? And they're not as expensive as they used to be, the HbA1c as a test, are they? Well, I, I, I mean, an HbA1c test costs, I think it's between seven and 10 pounds. You know, if you put that in the context of the cost of one day in hospital, yes. uh, it, it's, uh, you know, it's trivial. So, And probably very helpful for our primary care colleagues Absolutely. further down the, down the line as well. Yep. It's the, actually, you know, a helpful thing to, yep. to get done. Exactly. Uh, that's, that's been really informative. Thank you. So I think I probably need to frame and just step back and say, what would you count as, as normal? And when you have somebody that comes in with a high sugar, where, where would your range be? What are the numbers that you use to couch this? Yeah, treatment? yeah, yeah. So so, well, the, the, the standard um, advice within the NHS in Scotland is that for, for inpatients, sugar levels should be maintained between 6 and 12. That's for inpatients with diabetes. And in terms of stress hyperglycemia, uh, if that's what the individual has, I think also that that figure holds true as well. We know that, that hyperglycemia is, is bad for you in an acute setting. So there are many, many studies that have shown that, and I mentioned the, the longer term mortality of, of stress hyperglycemia, but in terms of acute morbidity and mortality, if sugar levels are higher, that, put, that increases your length of stay it increases your inpatient mortality. It increases, for example, uh, in surgical patients, the risk of um, post-operative infections. It's, it's just not a good thing. Now, why is that? Well, the, the, the etiology of hyperglycemia in acute illness is, is complex, so it's no surprising that the explanation of why it's bad for you is complex. But broadly speaking, if you're hyperglycemic, we know that causes an osmotic diuresis. You lose electrolytes, that's not good you will have a relative degree of volume depletion that makes your, your blood more hypercoagulable. So again, that's probably not going to be good. And we know that hyperglycemia does affect the function of the immune system, and so that enhances your susceptibility to infection. So acute hyperglycemia is, is not a good physiological state to be in. And so intuitively, we want to get that, those sugar levels down to as normal a level as as possible. I can remember as a, a younger doctor having a number of regimes. I think one was called Dagami. Dagami, yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> see, Dagami, that brings me back. So, so yeah, the so Dagami study. Uh, so that's that is an old study now. So, uh, in fact, I can't believe I, I can't believe you can even remember that. That is so. Um, so Dagami was actually published in 1995. Gosh, I'm old. That was at the time it seemed like a real landmark trial. So that this was a trial in people coming into hospital with acute myocardial infarction, and they were randomized to conventional blood glucose control, which at that time was really not doing very much at all, uh, versus an intensive regime, which included IV insulin and then subcutaneous insulin for three months. I should have said that these were people coming in with an acute MI who were very hyperglycemic. And in fact, they have, from memory actually, the, the average glucose 
for the participants in Dagami was about 15 on, on admission. Right. So these were very hyperglycemic patients. And the results of that trial were, were, were astonishing because what they showed was that mortality was reduced by a third by this intervention. And so that then, then as you've <laughs> hinted, led to all of this effort to try and get sugar levels down and people were putting IV in. But, but one of the problems with the design of Dagami was that we didn't know, was it the, the IV insulin that was the, the important thing? Was it the subcutaneous insulin on discharge? Was it both? So they did another trial called the Dagami 2 trial, where basically people were randomized to have IV insulin only, or IV insulin and subcutaneous insulin, or standard care. Now, in that in that trial, the average sugar going into the trial was lower. Okay. I don't know what whether just diabetic control was better at that point in time, or, or whatever. I don't know. But anyway, it was it was better. The headline result of that trial was there was no difference. That the acute intervention made no difference to long term mortality. And at the time, everybody was just, how can that be? You know, how, how could the results of the original Digami trial have been so positive, and yet the results of the Digami 2 were, were so, you know, un- yeah. unimpressive? And people were saying, oh, it was just, you know, it was just underpowered and, and, and whatever. But actually, so that there's two things just to, 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 to remember about that. In terms of the original Digami trial, it's a trial actually now, despite it having been so important at the time, that is actually almost irrelevant to modern practice, certainly in high resource countries. Because these were people coming in with full-blown acute myocardial infarctions, ST elevation, rise in CK. Um, virtually nobody going into the trial was on a statin. Virtually nobody was on an ACE inhibitor. More than half the participants in the trial were thrombolized. Gosh. <laughs> and nobody got PCI. Okay. So it does not, the, the, the patient population in Digami does not reflect in any way what we see today yeah. in terms of acute myocardial infarction and acute coronary syndrome. So that's one thing we have to bear in mind. The second thing is if you actually look at the Digami 2 graphs, the headline was there was no difference between the two acute interventions and standard care. Actually, if you look at the graphs, although it wasn't statistically significant, mortality was higher in the acute intervention arm. Gosh. Now, everybody ignored that at the time. They said, oh, no, no, that, that doesn't, it, it, you know, it wasn't statistically significant was the, was the thing. But the glucose targets that they were aiming for in Digami 2 were tighter mm-hmm. and say people had lower sugars going into the going into the trial and going forward there have since been a plethora of studies looking at uh, acute management of hyperglycemia in hospital and looking at mortality outcomes now the best of those is the what was called the NICE sugar trial which was an intensive care study multi-center intensive care study in that trial, they were aiming for super aggressive glycemic control in people in intensive care. You know, they were aiming for target sugars of about six. Gosh. I mean, really, <laughs> really, really tight. 
but it was an intensive care setting. Yeah. They were able to do the, the, the monitoring and, and everything. What did uh, Nice Sugars uh, show? It showed that uh, if you compared the outcomes in people with intensive versus standard glucose control, that the outcomes, the mortality was worse in the intensive arm. So That's a bit counterintuitive, isn't totally it? Totally counterintuitive. Uh, and that held true if you look, looked at surgical ICU patients, uh, medical patients, if you looked at people with pre-existing diabetes, people without pre-existing diabetes, it held true. If you went for super aggressive control, you ended up with worse outcomes at the um, at the end of the day. There was another uh, trial called it was called the Biomarks trial, which was a trial looking uh, at people with acute coronary syndrome, and they were looking to see they they, were, they used troponin as a marker of infarct size, and they were looking to see did intensive insulin treatment uh, reduce infarct size. It didn't, but again. What did they find? Oh, oh, statistically, overall, there was no difference in mortality. But in the Biomarks uh, trial, nobody died in the conventional arm. Five people died in the insulin intervention arm, and they died of hypoglycemia. Oh, gosh. And if you look at the nice sugar data, hypoglycemia, even in an intensive care setting where you've got bloods being done all the time, hypoglycemia was much more common in the intensive arm than in the standard arm. So my personal belief is that the reason that we don't yet see benefit of very intensive control inpatient studies is because the improvement in hyperglycemia brings with it a significant increase in the risk of hypoglycemia. And so in a way, you're overriding your own natural physiological response. So the stress response we talked about, it, it is a physiological response. Yeah, well, that's, the, yeah, absolutely. Well, well, you know, I said that, that, you know, all these stress hormones make you go hyperglycemic. But, but in turn, if hypoglycemia is a very, very, very substantial physiological stress for an individual, again, you pour out adrenaline and cortisol and other counter-regulatory hormones, you know, heart rate shoots up, uh, you, you know, it is a significant physiological stress. So again, to me, it is not, it, you know, it is biologically plausible that for frail, particularly frail, older people in hospital who are who are unwell, yeah. that if they become hypoglycemic in hospital, that that will have a very adverse effect on their outcomes. And again, there are observational data that show people who have episodes of hypoglycemia as an inpatient have longer stays in hospital and have increased mortality. So these are, you know, hypoglycemia is bad. And the problem is that we just, you know, the, the standard variable rate insulin infusion that we that we use on, on, on hospital wards to manage hyperglycemia is a very, very powerful tool. It works too well. And of course, you know, on a busy medical ward, it's difficult to be monitoring sugar frequently enough. We need to be, in order to make a variable rate insulin infusion safe, you have to be monitoring glucose continuously. Doing, you know, a, a finger prick test once an hour 
it's, it's ultimately <laughs> it's a snapshot. It's yeah. not it's not an off. It's, it's a it's a it's a single note in, in a in a in a long piece of music. Yeah, and that's the problem. And of course, we all know that again on busy medical wards that even if you're doing it hourly, that's pretty good. But you know, it doesn't always happen hourly. Yeah. Um, and so you can see why that although it's desirable, you think look, I'm being a really good doctor. You know, I'm getting this person's sugar levels down to five or six millimoles per litre. This is really good. But actually, it's not beneficial for the patient because all you're doing is increasing the risk of hypoglycemia and uh, physiological harm. So that's why I think the, the 6 to 12 target is actually pragmatically a very sensible target that we're that we're aiming for in sort of summary it's like anything in life the extremes are absolutely the things absolutely. to avoid yes so that's you right. neither want it too high nor yeah. too low and hence this six to twelve yeah. is a is a happy middle ground that enables yeah. the patient to go through that acute phase of illness and you support making sure they're not tripping into the 20s yeah. late teens but also you're not putting them yeah. at, at significant risk of hypos. I think that's a really good num- a good couple of numbers to have in your in your yeah. head of where you're aiming for it because I I know as a junior doctor you know from F2 sort of registrars and the nurses can often get very twitchy yeah. and you can get phone calls about this that they're keeping up they keep and you and you're giving these constant sort of minimum correction yeah. doses yeah. Yeah. and it's almost like a false sliding scale yeah, 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 and, yeah, yeah. and and actually you know, just keeping those numbers in your head can yeah. probably keep the patient at a safer yeah. in, index. That's that's really helpful. Again, something that is good for me to have in my head and probably change the way I approach these things. And I I just dread to think of all those poor people that were put on my Dagami regime all yeah, these yeah, years yeah, yeah, ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and another thing that I wanted to pick up when you talked about this, um, especially for frail older people, because I think that... Um, there is something that changes in your physiology, particularly as you get older or as you accrue multiple chronic diseases. So I have a subspecialty training in stroke medicine, and we know that you know older, more fragile brains that are more vulnerable to insult, and yep. it completely makes sense. And I know that we've tried in stroke as well, close glycemic control, yep. and again, um, you know, it was something that didn't show, show no, benefit. No, it showed no benefit at all. And and it makes sense in the way that you describe it. Actually, you know, that the brains are very vulnerable during those periods. So I think that's really helpful to to have that as a caveat in your mind and and keep the 6 to 12. So are there any technologies that might be able to in the future help us with this? Because I know there's there's lots of loop um, chat and loop communities that are happening. Um, So for the people who aren't familiar with that, would you just explain a little bit about about that? Yeah, well, I mean, diabetes management, type 1 diabetes management is increasingly becoming a technological disorder. So you, you, you'll you all have seen more and more people with type 1 diabetes coming into hospital with insulin pumps, and you'll have seen more and more people coming into hospital with continuous glucose monitors, such as the, the Freestyle Libre uh, device. And we now have systems that are available where the continuous glucose monitor talks to the, the insulin pump and the pump, in effect, makes many of the decisions around the, the dosing uh, of, uh, of insulin. So, for example, if the sensor predicts that the person is going to go hypoglycemic, so you're not even hypoglycemic, it predicts that you're going to go hypoglycemic, 
then the pump will switch off and it will start up again as the blood sugar levels start to, to rise. And going forward, uh, this is, of course is in terms of day-to-day outpatient management. Going forward, the, the future of type 1 diabetes, I have absolutely no doubt, is you know we want the vast majority of people with type 1 diabetes to be on what we call sensor augmented pump therapy, what's called a closed loop system. So basically you take the, the human element out of the decision making around insulin and it's all controlled electronically with algorithms based on the continuous glucose monitoring data. So that's what's going to happen over the next few years, finance permitting in type 1 diabetes in a sort of general community setting. However, you can see that that technology could very easily transfer itself to an inpatient setting. You know, I've spoken of the problem the, the, of the hourly BM that's done or the not so hourly BM, or even if you are doing an hourly BM, that's still not being frequent enough. And, and the NICE sugar study is a, is a case in point. You know, despite patients being in an intensive care environment with one-to-one nursing, hourly blood samples being measured, hypoglycemia still occurred. And it's because, you you know, between two one-hour finger pricks, you can quite easily dip into the, into the hypoglycemic range. So I could see a future again whereby we will be using continuous glucose monitors as the standard of care in terms of monitoring people with, with type 1 diabetes uh, in hospital and indeed people with type 2 and stress hyperglycemia. You, you could see it yeah. across all of it. Now, obviously, the financial implication of that is not insubstantial, but if you factor in the morbidity and the mortality that we've discussed of poorly controlled diabetes in hospital, then... And I'm sure there's evidence about it lengthening stay as well. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely right. So, you know, I can see continuous glucose monitoring coming in. And then if you do that, then it's a small step to say, well, okay, instead of of having variable rate insulin infusion systems as we have at the moment, let's just put on an insulin pump device or some device that again is talking to the continuous glucose monitor. And if you do that then you can aim for true normal glycemia in in hospital. You can aim for a blood glucose target of five to six because these integrated closed loop systems will abolish the risk of hypoglycemia. So I will be long retired, I suspect, before that absolutely comes to pass. But to my mind, that is inevitable, that that is the way that diabetes will be managed in an inpatient setting in in the future. It's quite exciting, really, isn't it? It's very exciting. I I have to say the technological advances that have occurred with insulin delivery for type 1 diabetes over the last five years have been seismic. And uh, these are life-enhancing, life-transforming advances. They, They actually offer the prospect of a technological cure for type 1 diabetes. Yeah. One of the things that will I think will be particularly interesting is that at the moment pump technologies tend to be given to people uh, who come from higher socioeconomic classes and they tend to be given to people who've actually got pretty good glycemic control. 
the sort of person who would never get a pump at the moment is the person who comes into the acute receiving unit every six weeks with DKA. Yeah. The so-called brittle diabetes. Now, again, you could imagine a situation that actually that sort of person might be, you know, the, the reason they don't get a pump now is because if you're on pump therapy at the moment, you have to be absolutely on it in terms of giving your bolus insulin doses, monitoring your sugar levels. And of course, unfortunately, the, the sort of person that's coming to hospital all the time with DK, they're not doing that. Yeah. And so that's why a pump is actually a dangerous thing for them to have at the moment. However, you can think in the future that giving people a closed loop system, that actually, it's almost like a plug and play. You don't need, you just put it on and you can forget about yeah. it. That I would like to think will reduce the, the socioeconomic disadvantage that there currently is for people with, with type 1 diabetes around access to technologies, but also, you know, reduce the frequency, the prevalence of these terrible situations that, mm-hmm. that you know, we see from time to time of, of people coming into hospital in severe DKA. I think also there's a thing for the inpatient, you know, you're just going back to the stress response, uncontrolled diabetic or, or hyperglycemia. You know, there is a risk, like you mentioned, we, we parcel them up and package them on to different yeah. units. Actually, this gives continuity, yeah. well, you know, and there is a variability in the experience of uh, units. Um, we, we're very fortunate here in the Western that we have a lot of diabetologists and we have an in-reach diabetes service. But actually, you can see how this can empower you to provide that standard of care. Absolutely. And, yeah. and, 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 yeah. um, and, you know, as a, speaking as an acute medic, you know, understanding that that's an opportunity that takes takes away that risk for the patient, yep. I think. Yep. I think there is yep. a perceived yep. you know, benefit for them to have that standardisation. Yep. And, and, and a technological advancement is always exciting. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, no, no, it is. It is very, very exciting. One of my uh, friends, uh, a gastroenterologist in Glasgow, I'll name check, he's called Robert Bolton-Jones, very, very good friend of mine. And yeah, they had a grand round at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital about 18 months ago on diabetes technologies. And uh, Robert uh, contacted me afterwards and said, gosh, when did diabetes get so interesting? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there has been a specialty with this much change, like you say, even from Dagami, yeah. when you look back to 1995, and actually, you know, you think what's happened, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. been no, fast the, 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 It has been, well, in terms of the technology, you're right. I mean, I think, obviously, in other specialties, there have been therapeutic advances, you think, of biologic therapies yeah. and things. But yeah, I think in terms of the technological solution, yeah, uh, yeah I think uh, diabetes is, is certainly in the, the vanguard in that regard. Yeah. And so just to um, come back to the sort of the, the hyperglycemic patients, so we haven't got these closed loop systems at the moment, well, no. hopefully they will come. So so keeping in mind the six to 12. And then in terms of, say you're putting somebody that's, you know, I think I'd like to talk a little bit more about the COVID specific thing. We've talked about that in our last podcast and you alluded to the ACE receptor and the impacts but it does seem to behave differently mm. in the acute, you know, in the, in the ITU setting with a lot of our patients. And I just wondered if you could talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, so I, I think COVID is a very interesting infection in very, very many ways. I mean, I, I suspect I, I, the, the podcast that I did just over 12 months ago Gosh. must be now horribly out of date because obviously the field has moved on. Yeah 
so substantially. But yes, the, the, there is no doubt that COVID does pretty bad things to your blood sugar levels. And I suspect it is combination, well, I, I, time will tell. We don't really know the, the, the full answers as I, uh, as I speak now, but I think there's no doubt that there is a huge stress response to, to COVID, just the severity of the illness, all those inflammatory mediators, all those uh, stress hormones are causing extreme insulin resistance and are making a very major contribution to the very severe hyperglycemia that we see that requires bucket loads of insulin to uh, to have any sort of impact on sugar levels. So I'm sure that the bulk of the of the impact of COVID on blood glucose is related to that level of severe insulin resistance that we're seeing as a consequence of the acute illness. But as I say, there is this suggestion that COVID may also directly impair the ability of the pancreas to produce endogenous insulin through the, the ACE receptor and, and through the ability of the infection effectively to get into the beta cells. And in fact, some centers in England are reporting uh, an increased incidence of type 1 diabetes in paediatric populations over the last 12 months. Now, that's not been categorically linked yeah. to COVID, and uh, you know that, that needs a major caveat on it. But again, it's just an interesting observation that has been that has been seen. It's an excellent so, research question. Oh, totally. It? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there, there's no question about it. So, so just to understand it, not only does it increase the insulin resistance due to the acute severity yeah. of illness, there is also a direct pancreatic yes. response as well. So it's almost like a double whammy. It's a, it's a double hit. That, that's what we, we believe. I say, I don't, I think there's still a lot of work to be done on the yeah. pancreatic infection element. So I don't yeah. want to, to, to overplay that. No. But you're, but Yes, in in theory, yeah. it may be a double whammy that we're yeah. we're seeing. But I but I say I think that the, the severe insulin resistance must be a consequence yeah. of the the acute severe counter-regulatory hormone and inflammatory response. Yeah. I'm sure that's what it must be. And we've start we've certainly started to see people coming through, um, you know, with who are now out of that intensive care period yeah. home, but they have quite significant sequelae of the severity of their yep. infections and I I mean you may not have the data yet but are you starting to see an increase in those people suffering with either insulin resistance or diabetes for so we so you're right we don't really have the data on yep. that at the at the moment I think this is going to emerge in the next six yep. to twelve months of you know are we actually seeing effectively because what you would you would imagine with if, if it is truly this double whammy, yeah. that yes, the, the severe insulin resistance will resolve. Yes. As yeah. you get over the acute illness, that all melts away. The key question is then, well, are people being left though with diabetes still at the end of it? Mm -hmm. and, and that, if they are, that may be a consequence of the pancreatic infection. Yes. And that's what we we need more data to 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 know if that actually does come to pass are we seeing more cases of established diabetes 
in the aftermath of a, a COVID infection. That will be very interesting to see. Well, watch this space. Yeah, I hope absolutely. we can come back and talk to you yeah, in no, another six, yeah, 12 months' absolutely. time. And because yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and, our first po- podcast left us with a lot of questions. And yeah. I think, you know, it is an exciting time, although a very troubling time, you know, with the pandemic. But, it, you know, it's been really interesting to see the evolution, the integration of research along absolutely. with, you know, yeah. and I think it has been a real celebration of that interface between acute care work and research yes th- oh, this has been uh, that's going on. Ab- absolutely right well it's, it's interesting one of my other roles is i'm one of the editors of davidson's uh textbook of medicine and we're just putting the final touches to the to the 24th edition and the and the whole writing process takes about 18 months to, to two years but the infection chapter came in at the end of the of the summer and of course there's a whole section on COVID but we realised at our editors meeting the, the other night that actually that COVID section is going to have to be completely revised now because just in the last six months the information the data that we have has you know it has moved on so dramatically yeah. so yeah you're, you're absolutely right it's been a, a triumph in, in so many ways of mm. of, of the, that integration of of primary basic research and uh, clinical uh, experience and uh, and research. And I think the sharing between the communities, you know, when, when it had hit Italy, the very fact that the yeah. RCP were having the yeah. Italian specialists coming yeah, on and talking, absolutely. you know, I think it's been a real point of sharing yeah. and, and of learning, yeah. which has, has also been a real privilege to be part of. Yeah, so agreed. I've enjoyed yeah. that. And everyone's become an armchair epidemiologist. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, Prof, thank you very much for taking the time to, to do this podcast today. I've, I've really enjoyed it and learnt lots and, and it's changed a lot of actually how I will approach the acute, um, acutely hyperglycemic patients. So thank you very much. Not at all indeed, Rachel. My, my absolute pleasure.